The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. July 1969, the first human beings walked on a surface other than the earth's surface. The Americans, we put, through NASA, we put two human beings on the moon. Or did we? (laughs) Some of you may be aware that there's a conspiracy theory that we never actually landed on the moon. Some of you may know that that's actually, some people think that that was all a hoax, that when President Kennedy put the challenge that we will put a man on the moon in the space race against the Russians, it was just so important that we beat the Russians by putting human beings on the moon, that it was all staged deep in Area 51. There was video cameras rolling, there was a Hollywood studio that looked just like the moon's surface, and it was all one big hoax. Now, most of us probably say, no, I'm pretty sure we landed on the moon, but there's some interesting evidence. One of the most common things that are brought up about the landing on the moon is when you look just simply at the flag that's on the moon, check out this picture, you see the flag on the moon, and it looks like it's waving. In fact, in the original footage, you can see when they're putting the flag down into the surface of the moon, the flag waves a little bit. And so conspiracy theorists say, critics say, look, there's no wind on the moon. There's no breeze. It's a vacuum. Why is the flag waving? They don't stop there. They say, man, if you, as you pour over these photographs, there's some other inconsistencies in some of these other photographs. One thing that as they're pouring over these photographs from the original mission, they say one major problem in these photographs is you've got shadows that are going in different directions. But if you're on the moon, there's one major light source. It's the sun, so all shadows should be going the same direction. You're like, what, what are you talking about? Well, check out this picture. You can see up at the top, you see one of the legs, you see the the shadow is going off to the left, and then you see this one right in front of us, you have a shadow going off to the right. Well, if they're on the moon's surface, I mean, you might see that in a Hollywood studio where there's lights lighting the set from all different directions, but man, if you're on the moon, there's one major light source, the sun, why are there shadows going in multiple different directions. Well, they say other pictures where they looks like, if you look in the, the reflection of the visor of the astronaut, looks like there's actually a, a light rig. It looks like that could be in the visor of the astronaut. It looks like there's some flashes that are a reflection of, you can see um, these, these lights that are all in a row, like in a, a movie set. It looks like that's what's happening. But there's other different ones. Like, for example, check out this picture. Um, I want you to look in the background. This is on the moon. There's no cloud cover in the moon, so you should have a perfect view of the universe. How come there's no stars? When you look at the blackness uh, past the moon, there should be stars 
everywhere. It should be stars like you've never seen on planet Earth. How come there's no stars? So a lot of these conspiracy theorists say, man, there's some things, and there's all kinds of other things, but man, the, the technology just wasn't there if you dig into it, and there's all these other things that they throw up and say, man, can you really know for sure? You really know for sure that we landed on the moon? Well, NASA has given explanations for each one of these things. The first thing they say is actually if you watch the video with the flag, you actually see that they're actually screwing it down into the dirt like a, a tent stake. So having to turn it back and forth. And you're right, there is no breeze, but that's when the flag's moving as they're jerking the pole back and forth, and then it's kind of frozen in that kind of furled state. And then they say, okay, you're, you're talking about the shadows, and yes, there is the sun and sky, but that's actually not the only light source on the moon, you actually have, just like on the earth, we have the sun's light source and the moon's light source. So when you're on the moon, you have the sun's light source and the earth is very similarly reflecting light onto the moon. In fact, it ref the earth reflects light onto the moon even more brightly than the moon reflects light onto the earth. You also have light reflecting off the suits of the astronauts. There's all kinds of uh, possibilities for why the shadows are going in multiple different directions. Well, what about the stars? I mean, there's no stars in the sky. And NASA says, well, yeah, but if you're taking a picture, anyone, any basic photographer knows if you're taking a picture of something very bright in the foreground, other things in the background are going to be lost. That's why you don't see stars in the background. And then NASA adds, well, there is also one really, really good piece of evidence that we went to the moon. We brought pieces of the moon back. <laughs> I don't know if they've thought that through. We've got rocks that armies of international scientists from all over the world have poured over for the last several decades and said, yeah, this is from the moon. It's just no option. It's in the moon. But I want you to listen to that. Okay, I think we all probably believe. I'm certainly trying, not trying to convince you that we didn't go to the moon. Of course, I believe we went to the moon. But my point is this. I want you to hear this quote from Time Magazine as it was talking about this debate about the hoax. Time Magazine said this. With the photos and videos of the Apollo missions only available through NASA. There's no independent verification that the lunar landings were anything but a hoax. Here's all it's saying. It's saying we can look at the various evidence and then make a decision. But there's really, really only one group that knows for absolute certainty it's those in that generation that were in NASA at the time. They're really the only ones that know for 100% certainty. The rest of us just look at the evidence and make a decision. Here's the point. The vast majority of things we believe in, at some point we take it by faith. Pretty much everything, if you look at the, almost everything in your life that you really believe in, I mean, think about history. We read textbooks and we just take it on faith, looking at the evidence and looking what the historians leave for us. You see the news, really what we're doing. We're not actually there and people can doctor photos and videos. And yeah, it's probably reliable. But in the end, if we're really looking at it, we are kind of taking it on faith that what they're sharing with us is accurate. The vast majority of what we believe in, we at some point take on faith. Now, this is a very important distinction to understand how faith operates all the time in our lives. Because the story that we're studying, the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, this story, let's just be honest, let's just be real humans, that's a crazy story. It's an unbelievable story. We're talking a global flood, 
they build a ship, they get on the ship with all these animals, and they survive. That's an unbelievable story. One that requires faith. And so here's what the point for this morning is just, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're going through this, this story of the Noah and the Ark and the Flood, and we're doing it a little bit differently how we do most of our series. Usually we just kind of go, we start at the beginning and just work our way through a little bit at the time, but we're taking it, in this series we're doing it differently, we're taking the whole story and taking the whole thing and looking at it, the whole thing in its entirety from different angles. And the angle we're looking at it this morning is just simply to answer this question. Are you crazy for believing that the flood actually happened. That's it. Just simply want to answer this question. Okay, maybe you've had a point in time in your life where someone said, man, you're a Christian? Like, I just could never believe the Bible. It's got these crazy stories about a dude who gets swallowed by a whale, and you've got Noah and the ark and the draft sticking out the top. I just, man, I just can't believe all those miracles and stuff. Maybe you've had someone push you like that. Maybe you've had someone say it even stronger. Like, man, you'd have to be brainwashed to believe some of the things in the Bible. And the story of the flood may be, I mean, miracles are hard to believe in in general, but this is a one that affected the entire globe. So are you crazy for believing that, that the story of the flood and Noah and the ark happened? Is that crazy? Let's jump in and read a section of the story to kind of kick things off here this morning. We're looking in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 13. Genesis 6, we're going to read just a a little section to kind of get an overview of what happened. We're going to start Genesis 6, verse 13. This is what it says. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So here's the basic story of what happened. God speaks to Noah and says, look, this world is pulling itself apart. It's killing itself. So I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over through you, Noah, and your wife and your sons and their wives. So what I want you to do is I want you to build a ship. This ark, this is not just a little boat. This is a ship. It's 450 feet long. Massive ship. I want you to build this ship, and I want you to bring in animals, two of every kind, into this boat. And then you're going to shut this, the, the door to the boat. You're going to cover it inside and outside with pitch. 
You're going to shut the door to the boat, and then the flood's going to happen. And then it goes on to tell the story. Waters come from, rains down, waters come up from the deep. The boat lifts off. Now, can you imagine that first moment when they're in that, that ark Okay, and I, I, can you imagine over the years the number of arguments they had on how to build that ark? Okay, and Shem is over in the corner, Noah's son, he's just mad, like, I told you not to put that one beam there. You know, he's all pouting in the corner. And then it's the, it's the moment of truth, the ark starts to creak, okay, and the water starts to lift up, and now they're saying, all right, here we go, let's see who was right, Shem or Noah. Okay, let's, all right, come back together. Okay, it's starting to creak, and it lifts up, and it's floating, and there, no one wants to move or breathe. Is it going to spring a leak? And it stays afloat. The waters come, come down and it says, it says the waters go up over the tops of the mountains. We're talking about a global flood. This is not a regional flood. This is a global flood. It's lifting up the ark over the tops of mountains. And it rains and rains and rains and rains. They've got all the animals on board. And then when it stops raining, they're waiting to see if dry land has appeared. They release some birds. They release the birds to, to come out, see what happens if they return. And finally, one returns with a twig in its mouth. And like, okay, there's going to be dry land coming. There's dry land starting to appear. And eventually, the ark comes to rest on the side of a mountain. And the waters eventually go all the way down. And they come back out. And according to the story of the Bible, through Noah, they repopulate. And those animals, they repopulate the earth. This is an incredible story. And just to be honest, to say, man, you really believe that story? You believe that that happened? That's a fair question. I mean, the Bible, there are parts of the Bible that say, okay, this is a parable. There are parts of the Bible that says, okay, this is figurative, this is a metaphor. And then there's parts of the Bible that says, this is history. And the story of Noah and the ark and the flood is one of those parts saying, this actually happened, this is history. I mean, we're pushed to say, man, do we really believe All that happened. It's one of the hardest things to believe in the Bible. It's a global event. Wouldn't there be evidence all over this planet if such an event took place? So we want to talk through this in three different ways. We're going to look at it historically, we're going to look at it scientifically, and we're going to look at it logistically. So let's start with this first question. I mean, think about this. This affected every culture in the world. According to the story, every human being came from Noah and his family. So this affected every culture. Now, here's a a fair question. I mean, why, if this is a global event, affected every human being, why is it only contained in the Bible? Why is the Bible the only book that knows about it? I mean, wouldn't it be in the histories of cultures all over the world? I mean, why is it just there in in the Bible? That's a fair question. But in fact, the answer is actually... There's stories of large and global floods all over the world. There's many stories. For example, the Egyptians have a, in their history, in their legend, in their myth, in their, their history, they have a story of the flood. In fact, the Babylonians have an incredible story of a flood, a story of, a, of God wanting to punish the earth. Has a man and his family, says, build a boat, cover it with pitch, get on board, take some animals on board. He sends out birds. Turns out there's dry land. So the Babylonians have a story remarkably similar to the story in the Bible. Well, that's interesting. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Time out. I, I think I know, I see what you're doing here. You know, but think about it. I mean, the, the Israelites, they were held captive by both the Egyptians and the Babylonians. I mean, couldn't their myths and their legend, couldn't they just informed each other? You know, isn't that possible that that's where they all got the same kind of story? Yeah, that's a great point. That's possible. But what's really interesting is that there's cultures that have never had any contact with 
Hebrew, ancient Hebrew culture that have the same story. Like, for example, the Hawaiians. Pretty sure Abraham never took a vacation to Hawaii. I'm not completely certain, but pretty sure that didn't happen. The Hawaiians, for example, now let me read you, here's a little excerpt about their story. The Hawaiians have a flood story that tells of a time when long after the death of the first man, this is how their story goes, the world became a wicked, terrible place. One good man was left and his name was Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. In the story, the waters came up over the earth, killed all the people, and only Nu'u and his family were saved. That's the Hawaiian, ancient Hawaiian story. Well, how about the Chinese? They have an interesting story. Another flood story from China. It records Fuhi and his wife, his three sons and three daughters. They escaped a great flood and were the only people alive on earth. After the great flood, they repopulated the world. Story in China. How about the story of the... Um, from ancient Aboriginal tribes in Australia, they have a flood story where the where the hero releases the, the hero sees a dove returning in front of them, or a bird returning with a twig in its mouth. In fact, there is flood stories so unbelievably common in the mythologies of cultures around the world that sociologists have had trouble figuring out why. Why is this one of the most common myths from cultures that have nothing to do with each other around the world? I mean, literally every single of all six of the populated continents have flood stories in it. There's something between 250 to 500 different massive flood myths in completely different cultures. To the point that sociologists have said, well, maybe it's just something psychologically in human beings. I mean, we were once in our mother's womb and there was water everywhere and maybe we just all come up with flood stories. All right, it's possible. Or maybe there was a real flood the real global flood that informed all of these different cultures. So if that's, all I'm saying is, is it plausible that there is a global flood? Well, there's remarkable historical evidence. And if there's remarkable historical evidence for a global flood, then maybe that's a fair possibility for some other discoveries and some other things that are hard to describe on planet Earth. For example, there's some interesting scientific evidence of a flood. Geneticists have made incredible advancements over the last couple decades, and one of the things is they're, is they're exploring genetics, and they're tracing back how genetics happened over the last uh, several thousands of years. Geneticists now believe in something known as the bottleneck theory. And they've traced in our genetics, they see it's pretty unmistakable that there's at least one or two bottlenecks in the human history where the entire global population of humanity was reduced to very few. And there's different debates as to what that number is, but one common theory as to why it was reduced genetically to a very few people is because of a a global natural disaster. And one theory is a gigantic earthquake that changed the entire weather system for the entire earth for a season. But is it possible that it was a flood, a great global flood of which there's incredible historical evidence that's reducing it to a single family that's repopulating the earth? Interesting in the field of genetics. How about in the field of geology? There's some incredible fossil evidence. Check out these fossils for a second. These are known as marine cephalopods. It took about five minutes to memorize that, and I have no idea what they do. But what I know is that those live in the ocean, and what also I know is that those were found in the Himalayan mountains. One interesting thing they're finding geologically is they're finding marine life 
in places you wouldn't expect to find it, like in the top of mountain ranges. One very possible, very easy to see would be there's a giant flood that covered those mountains. Other scientists say, well, over time that used to be the ocean floor and it's pushed up. If fossils happen on the ocean floor, but it's pushed up into a mountain range over a, over a long period of time. And other scientists say back, yeah, but it's a different kind of rock that's on these mountains than we find on the ocean floor. So that doesn't seem very plausible. But it's not only where they're found, it's where these fossils are, who these fossils are buried with. What we find, we find marine fossils buried in some pretty, with some pretty incredible things. They're buried with things that live on land. So listen to this. In Fossil Bluff, this is in Tasmania, this is outside of Australia, they found a, a fossil bed, and here's what they found in that bed altogether. Snails, clams, whales, possums. Why do we have all that together? And it's not just in one location. This is, they find this in almost every continent. They find this on every continent in the, in the entire world. This is in mont saint France. They found in this one particular bed of fossils, they found marine creatures with amphibians, reptiles, and insects buried together. They've also found in the Green River Formation. This is in Wyoming. Listen to what they found here. Alligator, fish, deep-sea bass, Birds, turtles, mammals, insects, and palm leaves buried together. Well, one possibility is that there was a flood that put it all together. Another possibility is, well, over millions of years, they just kind of moved into those same places, and that happened over a long period of time. But other scientists say, yeah, but look at the way they're buried. It's clear that they were all buried quickly, like in a catastrophic event. Well, what do you mean? How can you tell they were buried quickly? Well, check out this fossil. This is one that's found in that Wyoming fossil bed. That's a fish in the process of eating another fish. We have a glimpse of its final meal right there, its last meal. It was buried so quickly, it was buried in the act of eating that fish. And something they find in the fossil record all over the world is not only are we find marine life in weird places, we find marine life buried with other weird fossils, but it looks like they were buried very quickly. Now here's what I'm, t- I'm not trying to convince you, debate you into believing in a flood. I'm not trying to convince you of that. I'm answering a separate question. Is it crazy to believe in a global flood? I just hope I can show you some evidence so that you know it's not crazy to believe in a global flood. There's some fascinating evidence for a global flood. There's historical evidence and scientific evidence. We say, okay, it's one thing to be open to the possibility of a global flood. But who's to say the Bible's version is the true one? I mean, why not the Hawaiian version or the Chinese version or one of the other hundreds around the world? I mean, the Bible's version of the flood has some really crazy details. I mean, you're telling me that, that these primitive people built an entire ark, this gigantic 450-foot ship, and they get, how did they get all the animals in there? And how did they find all the animals? How could all the animals fit? I mean, there's a lot of difficulties with the bi- biblical description of the flood. And so let's move through this a little bit logistically. First of all, how could they have possibly built this ark? You're telling me that Noah, his three sons, and their wives built this ship. Well, actually, there's nothing in the Bible that, that would be against Noah hiring people to help him build the ark. God commissioned Noah to build the ark, but there's nothing that says he couldn't have hired someone to help. Yeah, but we're talking about like cavemen here, right? I mean, this is like Fred Flintstone building an ark. 
I mean, how is that possible? Now, I want you to think about this. I heard this theory um, this, this last week, and it really blew my mind. It's how logical and how fair this is. I want you to imagine if it's your family, let's say the flood's happening now, and God says, okay, it's your family I'm setting aside. Your family is going to repopulate the earth. You get in the ark. Everything's destroyed. You come out of the ark. I just want you to ask this one question. How much technology would be lost if it's just up to your family. Okay, have you ever played that game where you're hypothetically trying to survive on a deserted island and you have to pick who's the five people that you would take with you, you know, on a deserted island to survive? You guys ever played that game? Okay. I'm not on anybody's list of five. Okay? I, there's not much I can do for you on a deserted island. All right, if you want, like... Like, Pastor Matt, he's like an engineer, okay? Like, he, he can figure things out, okay? Pastor Dan, you know, he stays calm in emergency situations. He's just always even-keeled. He knows about technology. Okay, like, if you want, like, a, a good Bible devotional, like, on the island, take Pastor Justin, okay? He's smarter than I am. I'd take him, okay? If it was up to the Barnes family to repopulate, like, my descendants to repopulate the earth, we're talking, like, it's a good thousand years before we see a multiplication table, okay? The microwave is lost forever, okay? Never getting that back. All right, think about it. If your family is repopulating the world, how much technology is lost? The reality is we like to think of these people, well, they're like cavemen. They're just drawn like figures on the inside of caves. We actually have no idea how advanced this, these cultures were. Now, it's not like we believe they had like satellite television or anything like that. But they were building cities. There's some complexity with what they did. It's very possible and it's probable that they had the ability to build a structure like this. All right, fair enough. Noah built the ark. We'll say that that's possible. He hired some people. There was more going on than we realized back in that time. But okay, but the animals, there's no way. That part's insane. You're telling me there was two of every single animal on one ship. That's just impossible. Let's go back. I want to read uh, verse 20 again. Look at what verse 20 says. It says this. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Now, I want you to see this underlined part up here. Can you read this out loud with me? Read this with me. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Now, I want you to look what it says. First thing is it says, it's two of every kind. It's two of every sort. The Bible's pretty clear. It's not two of every single animal. It's two of every parent kind. So think like this. Like if it's dogs, it's not like, okay, make sure you got a poodle and you got two poodles Go find two Rottweilers and, you know, go find two Chihuahuas. Okay, don't even get those. Forget them. They can be lost in the flood. Get two. I'm sorry. I was mean. Uh, get two of every, it's not two of every single species possible. He says two of every kind. So what we're looking at is there's a parent kind from which has branched off over the last several thousand years to the various different individual species that we see today. So there's two dogs that have brought all the other kinds of dogs that we have thousands and thousands of years later. So we're talking not, it's very possible to have 
just parent kinds. In fact, they've estimated a conservative estimate, maybe 16,000 animals. Now, if you're talking about, that still sounds like a whole lot. But that would take up, they estimate at a conservative estimate of the size of the ark, 47% of the ark to have just the parent kinds. Now I want you to think about this. If you're getting these parent kinds and the point is to repopulate, at what point in that animal's lifespan is the best time to get them? It's when they're young. When they have their entire breeding life ahead of them. So you even have juvenile or baby animals that are not at their full size yet. These are the kind of animals that they're bringing on the ark, and it's, it's been shown that it's very capable to fit them on an ark that size. Okay, fine. How did he get these animals? Okay, so Noah, we'll just say he's an expert, like he's an engineer, we'll say, and he can build arcs. Maybe he's been building arcs all his life. Who knows? You know, okay, he's that. But you're telling me he's also like an expert zoologist, you're saying he's also like an expert, like he can trap all kinds of animals of various different shapes and sizes. Well, did you notice what the scripture says? It says, they will come to you, is what it said. The Bible is not claiming that Noah went and hunted down all these animals. What the Bible is claiming is that God brought them to Noah, a miraculous event. Now, do they all come in single file like the cartoon picture shows? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe a couple months leading up to the rain starting to fall, maybe they started to find them. Wow, there's some here. And maybe they, this one was like caught here and they bring them in. Who knows? But it's saying that God brought them to him. It's not saying that Noah went out and hunted down every single animal, brought them into the ark. Now here's what the, the point this morning is not to try and convince you logically that the biblical flood is true. It's just simply to answer this question. Are you crazy for believing in the flood. Are you crazy? No, you're not crazy. Actually, when you dig into it, there's some incredible, really shocking evidence of a global flood, and the, the flood story in the Bible is very feasible, especially if once you believe in God, all miracles are on the table, logically. He can work miracles if there's a God. Are you crazy for believing it? No, absolutely not. See, here's what so often happens is we're sometimes made to feel Like, you either have to pick following Jesus or being a logical, rational, scientific person. You've got to pick one or the other. It's like you're made to say, okay, you can either be a person of faith or you can be a person of fact. But as we already talked about, really, we take a remarkable amount of things on faith. I mean, how many scientific truths do we take even though we've never been there for the actual experiment? We're just trusting the findings that we heard. We take a remarkable amount of faith. We use faith all the time. It's not between faith and fact. We use faith regularly. But we're made to feel like it's as if, okay, you either have to follow God or you have to follow science. Like those, as if those two things are diametrically opposed. Well, you, you can't believe in both. Well, there's an... A, Thousands of incredible scientists that would disagree with that statement. Some of the greatest scientists in history were driven to science because they're exploring the world of the God that they love and serve. What science? Is science determining how the world happened in a natural way without God? No, that's not science. Science is exploring the world that God made. But those scientists that say, no, you've got to pick between God or science, you've got to pick between God or fact, faith or fact, you know, there's a, a whole list of scientists that they'd have to stand up and debate against. Let me just read you of the 
whole horde of scientists that believe in God and many that are Christians. Let me just read you 10 scientists, 10 of them that were Christians. Let me know if any of these names ring a bell. Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Newton, Mendel, Kelvin, Francis Bacon, Louis Pasteur, George Washington Carver. Just 10. Those are some pretty heavy hitters that are going to stand up to some modern-day thinkers, scientists who say, you've got to pick one or the other, and the, the shoulders that they're standing on would beg to differ. Not crazy for believing what you do, and at some point, you're always going to have to take a leap of faith. So here's, as Christians, here's four things to be aware of really quickly. There's four doubt inducers, the types of people we come across in our life that bring about doubt into our, into our lives. Let me just give you four really quick. Here's the first one. The first doubt inducer is the bully. There's probably someone in your life that doesn't just want to debate what you're saying. They want to make you feel like an idiot for believing that. It's nothing more than schoolyard bullying. It's really name-calling. Students, some of you just graduated from high school. Some of you are thinking about going to college. If you haven't already, you'll probably have a professor, not just a professor who disagrees with you. Of course, you'll have many of those, but you'll have a professor that wants to bully you. He, wants to, he or she wants to make you feel like you believe in religion, you believe in God. You're, you've got to be brainwashed to believe in something so primitive. I can't even believe that. That's ridiculous. Look, class, this person is just insane, foolish person right here. You know what that is? That's not logically, maturely sitting down, respecting someone and having uh, an honest intellectual dialogue. That's schoolyard bullying. Being, they're calling you names. It's just they've got some different initials at the end of their name, but they're still just calling you names. See, the bully is the person who uses their weapon as intimidation, and they want to use intimidation to induce doubt in your life. Maybe it's not a professor. It could be someone in your life that may be really smart or someone you knew or a book that you're reading or a YouTube video that someone sends you and it's some really angry scientist that just, man, anyone who believes in religion or God or, or the Bible, they're just absolute morons. It's the bully. Beware of it, and don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. The bully tries to induce doubt. Here's the second one. First one's the bully. The second one is the genius. It's the person that we feel like has all the answers, and they always have things that you don't know. Maybe it's that documentary that you're flipping through, and all of a sudden you see someone, and they're showing all these facts, and you're like, I, don't, I can't answer that. Maybe it's a really smart person you know, and they're bringing up things that you've never thought of. Don't get alarmed. Don't be surprised. There's no human alive that has all of the answers to everything. You've just come across a couple answers that you don't know the answer to yet. Stay calm. Don't be surprised. And if it's still bothering, if you say, ah, who cares? Or maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to actually dig into that a little bit. That caught my attention. And just calmly dig into it. The first one's the bully. The second one's the genius. Let me give you the third one. This one I bet you've come across, the combatant. This is the person at work that they just love to go find a little nugget of ammunition. And they love to come back to where, hey, Christians, you hear about this? Archaeologists say there's no record of such and such. Or, man, you, I can't, how do you explain this, Christian? And they, they love to show their little nugget that they win, their little ammunition. They love to shoot that at you. And here's what they're after. Their weapon, 
their weapon is not intimidation like the bully. It's not knowledge like the genius, quote-unquote. Their weapon is arguing. They want to get you into a fight. They want to get where it's heated. They want to get you on your heels. They want to make you feel defensive. And the moment you start feeling defensive and the moment your, your pride gets involved, the moment you feel like you're defending all of Christendom, well, I mean, my coworkers are watching. I mean, what if he wins this debate? Well, probably Christianity will crumble. I mean, I don't, all of Christian history, I don't know. The Holy Spirit's like, I can't do anything here and walks away at that point, I guess. It's not all on your shoulders. Just stay calm. Don't get into an argument. Here's some magic words that you can say. And honestly, it'll probably diffuse the situation. Say, man, you got a good point. I don't know the answer to it. Doesn't shake my faith, but I don't have all the answers. Maybe I'll look into it and get back with you. And they're like, all right, that's pretty reasonable. (laughs) Stay calm. The combatant wants to get you in an argument. The moment you're in an argument, you've lost. Don't get defensive. Stay calm and confident in what you believe. And here's the fourth one. And this one's probably the hardest one. It's the loved one. Sometimes some of these different categories, these doubt inducers overlap. But the loved one, sometimes that's the hardest. It's the parent that can't understand why you believe what you believe. It's the sibling that you can't even have this conversation with them anymore. It's the spouse that thinks you're nuts. I don't know what happened to my spouse, but they went off the deep end. They started believing all this crazy stuff. And sometimes that's the hardest because whether they mean it or not, their, their weapon, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's very unintentional, their weapon is acceptance. When you love them, you don't want them to, to, to think that they can't connect with you or think that you're an idiot or think that you've lost your mind and so you're struggling because you want their acceptance. But beware, sometimes a loved one is the one that induces doubt in us the most. But the scripture prepares us for that. And the scripture says God is a God of All truth is God's. All creation is God's. He made everything. It's for us to explore. We're not going to have all the answers, but there's some incredible evidence that he blesses us with to bolster our faith. But he promises that in the end, it's going to be faith. In the end, it's going to boil down to faith. Why would I I anchor my belief in in the Bible and and its version of, of truth? Because it's got the most unbelievable, elegant story about humanity you can imagine. It's not simply look at humanity, how messed up they are, and get it right, humanity, or I'm going to strike you down. No, that's not the story of the Bible. It's humanity, yes, you've fallen short. All of us, we mess up. But God loves us and accepts us so much that he came down to earth. See, this is really the only miracle that matters. If you don't if you walk out and say, I'm still not sure about the flood, that really doesn't matter as much as this one miracle. It's that God came to the earth in the form of a man, died on the cross, paying the punishment for our sins, and rose again from the dead. That's the one miracle that really matters. That's the one miracle that our eternity hangs in the balance over because God is offering a way for forgiveness for our sins. It's accepting that Jesus died for us. And you say, well, you know, man, honestly, that's one of those things I struggle to believe. All that heaven and hell business, man, I just, I don't know if I believe in all that stuff. It just doesn't feel right to me. It just doesn't sit right. This idea of hell, I just I think everyone probably goes to heaven. It just doesn't sit right with me. I just struggle to believe. You know, um, Rebecca and I have had a debate 
my wife Rebecca and I have had a debate going for about 14 years now. It goes back to when we were dating. And the debate is what our, our second date was. We, we went on a blind date, and um, I know that the second date was going to a coffee shop. She's under the delusion that the second date was going to a concert when clearly that was our third date. And this has been a pretty heated discussion. It became one of those things where let's just not talk about this anymore. We don't need to fight about it. I know I'm right. You'll come around to it eventually. Okay, so we don't need to talk about this. Well, about a month ago, we were unpacking uh, a box. And we happened to find a journal. Rebecca's journal dating from her college years. And she's like, oh, look, this is from our college years. It probably has a lot of stuff about when we were dating. And we both looked at each other. She said, do you think we should look at it? And I said, look, baby, I don't want you to get your feelings hurt, okay? Look, it's fine. You want to believe what you want to believe. We don't even need to look. I just don't want it to ruin your weekend, okay? Now, we decided to open the journal. What we found is immaterial, okay? It's really not even that <laughs> important for the story, okay? I don't, it doesn't even really matter. I mean... She could have made it up in the journal anyway. She probably went back and doctored it a couple months ago. Okay, but here's the point. There have been moments in my life that I have been 100% sure about something. And I've found out that I'm wrong. Maybe you've had that experience. Like I am 1,000% sure. And of course, in your life, you've come across a time when you're like, okay, actually, I was wrong. I couldn't imagine that I was wrong, but I was wrong. Now, let me ask you this question. Something as important as your eternity. Are you willing to just go on what feels right to you when we both know that each of us have not had a very good track record? Here's what an outside timeless source says. Every one of us deserves hell because we've fallen short from God. But God loves us so much that he provided a way and it's, we put our faith in Jesus, we're washed clean and he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And that Jesus is the only way that we're saved. Maybe this morning you want to make the decision to put your faith in Jesus. And you say, you know what? I know it's going to take faith. And I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus today. Can we just take a second and just go before the Lord and just take a minute before God? Would you just bow your heads and just, I want you to remain in a moment where you're meeting with God just quietly there in your seat. And would you just take a second and are you just going off what just kind of feels right to you and really is that worth trusting? Or if you're honest, can you look in and say, you know what, no, I'm ready. I, I'm not 100% certain, but I want to walk out of here certain today. The Bible says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you will know that you have eternal life. You can put your faith in Jesus today. Just say, God, I accept your love and your forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you just pray this simple prayer with me? Just right there in your seat. Make these words your words. Say, God, God, thank you for saving me. Pray these in your heart to God. God, thank you for saving me. I believe that I don't deserve heaven, but that you sent Jesus Christ to save me. 
that he died, and I believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe that miracle happened because he was God in the flesh. I believe that you want to forgive me once and for all today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.